Hey folks, Preet here. Joyce is away this week, so instead of our usual episode of Cafe Insider, we're going to address the gut-wrenching story many of us are attempting to process, the unfolding crisis in Afghanistan. As Afghanistan's government collapsed over the weekend, effectively ceding control to the Taliban, the U.S. military scrambled to evacuate thousands of civilians trying to flee the country. The 20-year U.S. war in Afghanistan, it appears, is ending right where it began, under Taliban rule. To help us wrap our minds around some of these stunning developments, I'm joined today by NBC News' chief foreign correspondent, Richard Engel, who's been covering the situation on the ground in Kabul. No stranger to the realities of war, Richard has been stationed all throughout the Middle East, from Baghdad to Beirut to Benghazi. In 2012, he and his crew were abducted in Syria, where they were held hostage for five days. Richard joins me now on the ground at the airport in Kabul. Richard Engel, thanks for being on the show. It's my pleasure. So the first thing I want to say is I hope that you and your crew are safe. I've seen you ubiquitously on television. There's lots of bad things going on. Where are you right now? We're recording this at around 10 a.m. Eastern time on Tuesday, August 17th. Where are you and what is going on? So I am in a, a very strange place. And I have come at the airport. I'm on the military side of the airport. And we're watching the evacuation process take place. And overhead, there are fighter jets. There are evacuation planes taking off and landing. And there are lots of troops and lots of contractors who are still here. I thought that the evacuation was going much more quickly. And I got onto this base today. And I was surprised at how many people are still here. And then all around the perimeter of the base, that's what makes it so strange and so surreal. So we are on what is effectively the last American base, last international base that is being evacuated. Still more people here than I expected. And then all around are refugees, people crowding to get in, people pushing around the entrances. So getting onto here was not easy at all because there are many people who get on these flights, Afghan civilians, who are trying to get here. We saw those images yesterday and the day before of people bursting onto the civilian side of the airport, which is just a few hundred yards away, and then coming onto the military side. And then the rest of the city of Kabul is controlled by the Taliban. What's the frequency of flights? How many people are being evacuated on what time frame at the moment? So the, the flights seem to be moving pretty quickly. They will come in, I don't know, every 10 minutes, 20 minutes. They seem to come in waves. So maybe in, in half an hour, three will come in or two will come in in, in pretty quick succession. They're not on the ground very long and then take off again. So then there's a pause and then there's another batch that comes in. They're not on the ground and they, they move out. They, they do seem to be making up for lost time because when they, the runways were overrun, they had to stop this evacuation process for, for about half a day. And it is just the strangest thing because you have these, these three layers, imagine three realities, three worlds. I'm on this base. It looks and feels like a base. I don't know if you've spent any time on a U.S. military base. There's gravel, there's sandbags, there's defects. There are lots of different vehicles moving around. There's soldiers on bicycles moving back and forth. So it looks and still feels like a base. People are carrying boxes around. A lot of soldiers with, with guns moving around, packing up things, grabbing bottles of water. Then you have the outer perimeter with all these people desperate to get in. And then you have Taliban country. What's the level of desperation? 
among the Afghans who are trying to get out? Is it is it abating? Is it getting worse? Who have you talked to? What are they saying about how badly? I mean, we saw those scenes of people clinging to aircraft. Yeah, well, they're not clinging to the aircraft anymore. They they managed to get the people out. The way the the, the actual geography of the place is important. So you had the civilian side of the airport where commercial planes came and, and went. That side is closed right now. And when people rushed in, that's where they entered first. They climbed over the fence, they burst through the gates, and then the tarmacs, the, the runways of the commercial side and the military side are quite close together. There's barbed wire in between them, but that doesn't stop people. So once they got into the commercial side, they spilled over onto the military side. They've now been pushed out of both parts of, of the airport, both the military and the civilian side. The civilian side is, is shut down, and that's why the, the process is ongoing. So we're not seeing aspiration here. We're seeing aspiration of the people who are trying to get onto this space, the people who were or would have otherwise been trying to cling to the bottom of those planes. And they're angry. People throwing stones, people throwing sticks. There's anger. Why are you able to, to get in? And a lot of Afghans feel that the evacuation is for the Americans, for the American personnel, for contractors. And they're saying, well, what about us? We want to go, too. And, and there's a lot of frustration and anger and, and embitterment. But there's also some here. And I spoke to a group of Afghan workers here, and, and it was a little, I don't want to say that, I'll say it. I, it was shocking. They've been working on this base for several years. One had worked on the base as, as, a, as a cleaner. Another worked in the, uh, in the dining facility, serving food, doing, uh, doing some food prep. And they make around $500 a month. And they've been living on the base because of COVID for the last six months. They couldn't go home. They, because of that, they were getting an extra $6 a day. And they're here on this base watching the planes leave, and they haven't been able to get those visas to leave. And I said, this is shocking to me. You're on the base watching the visas, and you, you don't even have the visas? They said, no, our families came today. They couldn't get in. They were waiting outside for hours and hours. I said, well, you're here. You're looking at the planes go. Nobody's, nobody's giving you a special visa because you're at, danger, you're at risk because they work for the Americans, clearly, for years and years. And they said, no, nobody was willing to vouch for them. So you've referenced anger and frustration on the part of Afghans. I've known you for a long time. The public has known you for a long time. Fair to say that you're angry, too? It's, it's a different kind of anger. The Afghans are angry because they were building lives. They were building their future. They had expectations. They felt betrayed that they were, they had a deal with the Americans, that the Americans were here for 20 years. They were, these the work, the ones who worked directly with them had a deal that, you know, that was, and they're angered because they feel personally betrayed. I'm, I'm, I'm shocked at how disorganized it has been. I'm angry for them. I think that's fair to say. And I, I tell you what I tell them. One of these guys who told me, this guy, he worked in the dining facility and he was telling me his story, how his, his kids and his wife were outside the gate in the crowd for eight hours today, pushing in. And the base commander said, no, no, we'll work it out. Don't worry. And now that we can't base commander anymore. And he told me, he said, you know, you're the first person, me, I was the first person, he said, who even asked him how he was. And I told him, I said, look, I can't apologize because I, I didn't do it. I said, but as an American, I'm really sorry. I'm embarrassed that this is how you're being treated that after working here for, I think he was five years, serving out food, and now because he did that, he can't go home without fearing 
death because he was a collaborator with the enemy. And nobody's even asking him how he's doing. So, yeah, uh, is it fair to say, am I angry? It's not the same. It didn't happen to me. But I'm I'm shocked and I'm sorry for him. And I'm embarrassed that he and and so many others are being treated this way. The reason I'm asking, Richard, is that there's a lot going on. You are putting yourself in harm's way. And I think that's heroic to make sure that we are getting images and pictures and stories from what is going on in Afghanistan, as you've done in other war zones throughout your career. I just want to give you an, an opportunity to respond to some folks. Over, overnight, it's a dubious distinction. You were trending on Twitter. I don't know if you're aware of that. You have more important things to worry about. I am not, I, I am not aware. You were trending on Twitter because people have noted your anger and your frustration, which I think is well-placed. And the question is, what do you say to folks who think that that has affected your objectivity in reporting this? Uh, I think maybe they're referring to last night because I was a little bit, I don't want to say angry, but it was a little bit, it struck me because they were asking, what would be the reaction? It was Lester. What would be your reaction there about the, the Biden speech? And he said, well, human rights are the cornerstone of our foreign policy. So he's bringing up human rights being the cornerstone of this administration's foreign policy and his foreign policy as on the day that people are trying to cling to aircraft coming out of this base because they don't want to be left behind. It seemed incongruous at the very least. It seemed like an odd moment to be thumping your chest and talking about uh, being a champion of human rights. So I don't know. I didn't know why I was on Twitter. Maybe, maybe it was in the tone of my voice. I, I don't know, but I'm, I'm not trying to be angry. I'm, I'm try- I'm, I think I am a objective and I'm telling you what I'm seeing and I'm, I'm telling you what's happening here. And I'm not trying to go on a rant here, but you know, when you talk to people, certainly it, it, it impacts you. When the president, the current president says we prepared for all contingencies, based on what you have seen and reported from the ground, does that seem like a fair statement? How can there be all these contingencies to get these people out when they can't even get the people out who work on the base, who are watching planes go? I spoke today, earlier today, before I got in the space, with two other translators. Both are in hiding, and both are terrified for their lives. One was in tears. What contingency? What contingency? I don't know if people fully realize how complicated and bureaucratic it is to deal with the U.S. government from afar. The U.S. government is generally pretty bureaucratic anyway. But if you, to, to get one of these special visas, you need to go through the State Department's website in English and submit lots of forms in English. And all the spellings have to match. You have to submit letters of recommendation. One little error and your form gets rejected. Your file gets rejected. Almost all the people I spoke to, their files are still pending because there was some paperwork missing or not properly accounted for. So these are Afghans. Some of the people here, some of these, because they're not all translators, some of them were just worked on the base. They don't speak very good English. How can they be expected? And this is a country where there's not a lot of internet and there's not a lot of places to go and and print out documents and get photographs and submit these things. So what contingencies? If you're in the middle of Kabul now and the place and you're surrounded by the Taliban, the Taliban are in, in cases looking at people's phones. They're looking to see if they have documents just like this to prove that they work for the U.S. military. So how, how are you going to then prove your case that you, you it's, it's an unrealistic expectation that they have to go through this enormous bureaucracy and, and Anyway, the most, what I was most shocked is that the people who are here on the base watching the plane, even they don't have it, let alone the translators who I spoke to who are in hiding in Kabul. There are a couple of things. One is the bureaucracy itself, and the other is how early they began doing this. 
There have been some people who have suggested, and I wonder what you think of this, had the U.S. government started in earnest trying to evacuate interpreters and allies quickly, that would have looked like desperation. Well, would it really? I don't know. Would it really? Because you're giving people paperwork. You're giving people visas. People who had already applied for the visas. That's going to collapse the Afghan government. That's going to demoralize the government. One of the guys I spoke to today, he's been waiting for four years. Four years. I spoke to him this morning. He's, he's in tears. He's hiding. Do you know how long it took me to verify his story? This guy worked for several years for the U.S. military on combat missions, translating. And if you're a translator on a combat mission, it's not like being a translator at the United Nations. You're helping troops in real time find the enemy, whether that's Al-Qaeda or the Taliban or ISIS. You have to translate for them their meetings with Afghan elders and convey the meaning and, and, and relate the tone. You're an integral part of that mission. You are the eyes and ears of that mission. So they were helping U.S. troops protect themselves and, and hunt down their enemy. This guy did many of these missions, and he has all kinds of letters. He gave me the email of his, the commanding officer he worked with. I emailed him. He wrote back. I had him on the phone in 45 minutes. He said, oh, yeah, I remember him. He's great. He was great. And, he said, and his story matched. It took me 45 minutes. He's been waiting for four years, and now he's crying in downtown Kabul. Do you agree that there's a difference between the decision to exit Afghanistan, which is why, by the way, quite broadly popular in the U.S., a difference between the decision to exit and the way it was executed? Given the context, and some people have been critical of, of critics of Biden who say, well, his hands were tied a little bit on the issue of exiting because there were mistakes made by Trump and Obama and others going back to Bush. Good. I'm glad you asked me that question because this allows me to go back full circle. You asked me... You know, does it be anger to the emotion or the affect my objectivity? It's not to me to say, oh, we shouldn't have pulled out. I'm not dictating policy here. Nobody asked me. I'm a journalist, right? It's not up to me. I'm not elected official. Nobody elected Richard Engel, president of the United States. But I can tell you, having watched it, that the way it was carried out was sloppy. And the way it is being carried out is leaving many people behind. And that's objective. I, I'm watching it now. Whether you want to pull out, don't want to pull out whether the, the war is going to work, whether it would have worked keeping 2,500 troops, which were more like 3,500 troops here, whether that was the right policy decision, you can endlessly debate that. But you can't really endlessly debate that this has gone well, that this pullout has gone smoothly, and that this is a, a glorious moment of transition. That's not debatable. On the question of exit, you tweeted yesterday, quote, President Biden says the failure in Afghanistan proves he was correct. Is that prayers? That is, uh, yes, there was a mosque on the break, but, uh, but I, I, can, I can still hear you. So President Biden has, and, his, and his team can defend themselves on their own, but isn't part of the point that Biden was making is that the fact that there was such a spectacular failure upon exit means, as he has said otherwise, staying for another six months or a year or five years, at some point, the Afghan forces and the Afghan government were going to topple immediately upon our departure. Isn't that fair? Maybe. 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 Look, there, there were deep problems here. It's not like this was some utopia before. The Afghan government was corrupt. The soldiers weren't getting paid. They were units that weren't clearly capable. Ashraf Ghani, according to 
many people I've spoken to was a, was a terrible leader and especially was not a good wartime leader. He made some disastrous decisions, moving people around, changing his, his defense uh, establishment, his minister of defense in the last, putting in people who were not particularly competent. There were serious, serious problems here. But what I meant is that odd logic is when something is broken, it's hard to then say, see, it inevitably would have been broken. Like when something drops on the ground and then you drop a pot, it's broken. Ah, see, that's proof it was fragile. Maybe, maybe it would have inevitably broken. Maybe there was no hope ever for Afghanistan. But I spoke to lots of Afghans a year ago, two years ago, and the place was feeling better. It felt stable. The Taliban were in retreat. They were losing. American troops weren't dying here. The last Americans who were killed in combat was like something like two years ago. There weren't many troops out on patrol. They weren't kicking down doors. They were on bases like the one now assisting the mission. So you had a few thousand troops who weren't dying assisting the mission, and they were holding the place together. So the question is, was that better than we have now? Right, but that's now you're making an argument not against exit, not just about the execution of the exit, right? Well, the execution of the exit precipitated the, the collapse in the, the way the withdrawal from Bagram Air Base, for example, was done. It was done overnight, switched off the lights, leave the troops, goodbye, we're done. And then I went there and the Afghans couldn't turn the lights back on. And there were all these vehicles just sort of left abandoned on the, on the tarmac. And this was a quick exit. The U.S. left and turned off the lights. And when you do that to a fragile army, is they crumble. And that's what happened. The big problem here is whether you call it an intelligence failure or something else, and you've called it an intelligence failure, is how quickly the government fell, how quickly the forces fell. The Biden folks thought they had more time to do all these things with the interpreters and others. They thought they had months. Turns out they barely had days. And you tweeted a couple of days ago on this intelligence failure, quote, I know some U.S. military commanders anticipated it. They told me, yet somehow their voices were not heard, end quote. Who, I don't, I'm not asking you to name names. What do you mean you're asking me to name names? Who were no, they? No, I'm not going to ask you to name names, but, but who were they and how high-ranking were they and why were they ignored? I really don't know what goes on in the NSC and who's up and who's down and who's whispering. There are plenty of people you can get to talk to on the, on the Washington front. They can tell you the politics of, of inside the White House. But the people here in Afghanistan, including some senior military officials and many Afghan officials who were in contact with the State Department, were predicting that... Not all of them. You know, there were divergence of voices, but the voices were, were out there that once the, uh, the, the cracks started emerging, that they would be profound, that it would snowball. Immediately. And, immediate, and immediately. Yeah. It wouldn't take months. The, the debates I was having, I don't know, three months ago, were not, will Afghanistan hold? Because the provinces, the outer regions were already folding. It was, will Kabul hold? And there were two, there were two and I remember having this discussion open discussion, you know, over, over coffee and harder drinks with Americans and with Afghans about places is falling apart. Will Kabul hold? And there were two schools of thought. One, that Kabul would be the rock and that people here are armed and they generally are armed and that they would defend themselves. They'd be firing out of the apartment windows. And I was saying at the time, it's never going to happen. They're going to go home. They're going to go back to their villages. They're not going to fight for the capital because Kabul is it's not anyone's homeland. It's not like Mazar Sharif or Harat, where you have an ethnic group, or, or, or Bamiyan, where you have an ethnic group that is lived there and is based there. 
Kabul's it's an international place. It's home to all and home to none at the same time. And I thought, okay, if all the provinces are around, nobody's going to stay and fight for Kabul. They're going to run back to their home provinces to protect their families. And they're certainly not going to protect the government of Ghani, which was, which was very unpopular. Everyone is rightfully concerned about what the Taliban is going to do, both as a matter of government and as a matter of violation of rights of women and turning the clock back. There have been reports that there are Taliban fighters going door to door to try to find people who they believe were treacherous, executing them, taking child brides. Is any of that confirmed? Is the Taliban engaging in that behavior or is that exaggerated at this moment? On a small scale, it's happening. Uh, according to multiple witnesses, not so much in Kabul, but in, in the areas that they took earlier up in the north. There are reports that the, the fighters will, will sweep through, and if there are unmarried women, they'll take them as brides. Against they will. And there are reports that they went house to house looking for people's phones. Uh, actually, one of the translators I spoke to today said his brother had a knock on the door. And they were asking him questions about who he was and what he did in the past. So they are inspecting the place where we used to live, our office, at a visit. The Taliban are going around. They're going into media organizations. They're, they're knocking on the door. They're confiscating weapons. They're checking out who's who, what's what, and what people have in Kabul now. At the same time, they're saying that they're issuing this broad amnesty, that everything's going to be good. They turned a page. There was a picture of the Taliban going to Shia mosque today to show solidarity with the Shia for the Ashura holiday. They said that women should go back to work. So they're saying all the right things. But in the provinces, there are these reports of, of grabbing child brides and, and certainly going house to house. And I know in Kabul, they're looking around. They're, they're knocking on doors inside. They're looking mostly for weapons. They're not flipping over beds, but they're they're getting laid in the lab. And if, you're, if you work for the military or you worked for the, uh, for the NATO or you're a contractor, that's very, very worrisome. Yeah, I, I know, Richard, that you're not a domestic policy guy, but a lot of the issues relating to Afghanistan have to do with what the appetite of the American people is to remain in a country, whether you call it an occupation or not, whether you call it a war or not. And I wonder what you think of the old phrase, I think from some years ago, where, where some unknown military official said, you know, America is not at war. The military is at war. America is at the mall. And that until Americans care more about foreign policy, you know, military commanders are kind of at a loss to try to do what they want to do. And someone else has speculated that notwithstanding all the uproar now, within not too long a period of time, Americans will forget about this, move on, and they'll do that also at the mall. What do you think is the longstanding consequence in America and then for America's standing from what's happened over the last couple of days? It's, you know, I'm not a, a psychologist, and uh, the American psyche, will Americans move on and shrug their shoulders and forget? Maybe, maybe, because Afghanistan is complicated. Maybe they feel bad about it now because the journalists are here and we're, we're focusing a lot of attention on the story and we're talking about the plight of women. Will they still be concerned in two weeks, two days, six months? Maybe not. But it doesn't mean that the problems go away. It doesn't mean that the world forgets that Afghanistan and the world forgets about what has happened. Even if, if Americans aren't thinking about it and they're going to the mall, it's almost irrelevant. It was a, uh, an op-ed in a newspaper today 
Chinese newspaper saying, warning Taiwan, look what happened. America's not going to be there for you either. If there's a war, they're going to leave you high and dry. Russia is saying, we're here, we're staying, we stick by, we're not the problem. China also said that the U.S. is the greatest exporter of chaos around the world. The Taliban is saying it defeated the U.S. and this is a glorious victory for the global jihad. Al-Qaeda offshoots are saying this is a divine intervention. So whether Americans want to forget or not is a little irrelevant uh, because the rest of the world is going to see this and might not forget. I hope Americans don't forget. They shouldn't forget. But the world is not going to forget. Afghans certainly aren't forgetting, the Pakistanis aren't going to forget, the Iranians aren't going to forget, the Turks aren't going to forget, because they're still going to be dealing with this. This is a big, it's also a big part of the world. Well, here's something that people have not forgotten, because it keeps getting invoked in the last couple of days, and that's the fall of Saigon, and images from the fall of Saigon. Do you think it is a fair comparison, or an unhelpful exaggeration to compare what's happened in Kabul and Afghanistan to Saigon? I had a military official spoke to me not in an official capacity, said, this is worse than Saigon, the larger scale than Saigon. There are many people who are comparing this to Saigon. So uh, I, I understand the analogy. When you see people clinging onto the bottom of aircraft, they can leave so that they're not left to the fate that they're being left to, where you have people who worked with the Americans who don't want to be left behind, who feel that they quite a few parallels. And many people have been speaking to including some in the, in the military, to leave there are parallel. Can I, can I ask, based on everything that you've been seeing on the ground and the blowback and the criticism, is there any reason to believe that the Biden administration, with respect to getting interpreters and allies safe, for want of a better phrase, are they getting their shit together or not? No, no, they're not. I mean, not as far as I can tell. I know you have to go in a minute. Do you have concerns about your personal safety and your crew? Um, no, I don't want to sound cavalier, but we're already, we're on this base right now. We're kind of through the gauntlet, but no, I, I think at this stage we're already in the, we're in the bubble. Operating in, in Kabul is, is, is different. So far the Taliban have been, been quite friendly to the journalists, although not all of them equally. So we'll see if that lasts, but, um, no, thank you for asking, but we're, we're all, we're all good. And how, how long will you stay? I don't know. Depends on these planes and availability and and our ability to and keep reporting, but uh, play it as it comes. But probably not too much longer, I don't think. This final question, what, what do you say to folks who ask the question, was all of this a waste, the $2 trillion, the 20 years, the loss of life, was it all a waste? <sighs> That's tough. That's a tough one. A waste? Maybe we're even worse than we were before. So I, I don't know, if you, if you spend money and you've done damage, is that a waste, or have you spent money and actually harmed yourself? A few weeks after 9-11, the Taliban, a few weeks after 9-11, with 400 Americans, about a 100 CIA and 300 special forces, they toppled the Taliban and had al-Qaeda on the run. This was just weeks after 9-11. It cost very little. One American was killed, CIA officer Mike Smith. That happened right after 9-11. Didn't cost much. There was no presence on the ground. What happened... For the next 19 years, was the U.S. kind of coasted it, boosted its troops up, but it went down, it went to Iraq, it saw troops go back in, and the U.S. was on a, on a kind of a treadmill. Many people said that this was not a 20-year war, it was 21-year wars, 
because each year you'd have a new commander come in and a new unit would come in and they would fight their tour and then they'd go back and and then the new group would come in and they'd fight their tour and go back and that there was never we had more or less the Taliban beaten and Al Qaeda on the run a few weeks after nine eleven. So did we, was it all a waste? Where we are now it's probably in a worse place than where we were just a few weeks after 9-11 because the Taliban is in power. And, and is, that, is that what the military people you speak to say? Do they say that about their own government and their own military and the plan there? Well, right now, they're busy with this evacuation. So it's not like I'm having these long philosophical conversations with troops here. You know, they're focused on, on moving along. But troops who served... They're starting to write articles. They're starting to reflect. They're starting to deeply about the, the time here. And, and yes, I've, I've spoken to numerous people recently in very senior positions. I'm actually working on an hour documentary that's going to come out soon in which I feature some of these interviews in which many, many people who had senior positions expressed these exact sentiments that the U.S. accomplished a great deal for a few weeks and then for 20 years fought 21-year wars kind of starting over each time. Richard Engel, I know you're, you're busy. You have a lot going on. Please stay safe. Thank you for your service, and we'll talk soon. All right. Thank you. Folks, thanks for listening. We'll be back with a regular episode of The Cafe Insider with Joyce Vance next week. If you'd like to become a member, go to cafe.com slash insider. That's it for this week. Cafe Insider is presented by Cafe Studios and the Vox Media Podcast Network. Your hosts are Preet Bharara and Joyce Vance. The executive producer is Tamara Sepper. The senior producer is Adam Waller. The technical director is David Tattashore. And the cafe team is Matthew Billy, David Kurlander, Sam Ozer-Staten, Noah Azulai, Nat Wiener, Jake Kaplan, Chris Boylan, and Sean Walsh. Our music is by Andrew Dost. Thank you for being a part of the Cafe Insider community.